to episode 116 of the Swamp Flex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And we are recording in our separate COVID bunkers in New Orleans, <laughs> Louisiana. Yes. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flex. Uh, I don't. I think that's the first time I've ever done the Swamp Flicks. Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly the first time you and I have ever done this solo, just you and me. So this is exciting. I know. I'm a little nervous. This feels like, I feel like a debutante, basically. This is my like, <laughs> my true podcast debut. But I'm very excited because I, I like the topic that we have today. So I'm, I'm ready to get into it. And full credit where it's due, you've been running tech support in the background ever since we went into lockdown. <laughs> that's, tr- that's true. I mean, it is my it is my Mac, and I feel like I, I it feels good to have some tech capabilities, even if basically the extent is looking things up on Google. <laughs> yeah, but I like being you know in the the banisters of Swamp Flicks, running around and helping with technical problems. The Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've never heard James sound so old as him like fumbling <laughs> with the microphone trying to figure out how to work it. Yeah. And then you have to come to rescue him repeatedly. Yeah, well, we're a, we're a good pair. We, we have uh, strengths <laughs> and weaknesses and we, you know, we make up for it. Well, I have talked to you a few times. Uh, actually, you saved my ass too because my freezer broke and I had to bring <laughs> a bunch of food to your house. Yes, it was a pleasure to have so much butter in the fridge in case we needed it. <laughs> Yeah, we do hoard butter. It freezes very easily. Really? Yeah, so you buy it when it's cheap, uh, and then you freeze it. Oh, that's a great idea. I've never frozen butter before. But yeah, we um, sometimes don't stock our fridge very much, especially the freezer. So we open it up, and it's just like ice cubes and vodka, and it feels a little lonely. So I just loved opening the freezer and having like like shrimp and meatballs. It, it felt like a festive freezer. It was a glorious act of charity. <laughs> I very much appreciated it. No worries. But I would scuttle into your house and grab food from the freezer so we could make <laughs> meals. Yes. But I never really talked to you very much, so I have no idea how you've been doing or yeah. if you've been watching movies lately. We've been kind of disconnected. Right. Well, let me catch you up. Um, I have been barely watching movies. I've been watching a lot of bad reality television, especially... Um, the Seven Year Switch, which is a reality TV show disguised as a like psychiatric experiment or a uh, couples therapy experiment where spouses switch partners for two weeks. But as far as movies, uh, James and I recently watched Tales from the Hood, which is a um, horror movie anthology specifically centered on uh, three black men in a funeral home, which I'm sure he'll talk more about. And we also watched Mean Girls a couple days ago for like, I mean, probably the fifth time we've seen it in our lives. There's just something wonderful about watching a movie that brought me so much joy when I was in like fourth grade. It really, more than anything else I've watched recently, it totally brought me out of like the quarantine COVID era for an hour and a half. So that is pretty much what I've been up to. I have like a weird like distanced relationship with Mean Girls. Like I saw it once in the theater, Mm -hmm. but I think it was like in the middle of the day and no one else was there. So like my friends and I were kind of like not paying attention very much and kind of like joking around during the screening, Mm -hmm. which is shameful because it became like a cult classic over the years. And then I saw it once again, like way later, like recently-ish, like the last five years maybe. And it was funny. It was very good. Yeah. 
there's a lot of like descendants of that mean Heather's style, like high school comedy, mm-hmm. like Drop Dead Gorgeous and right. Sugar and Spice is one and Jawbreaker. Oh, yeah, totally. But they don't make those movies very much anymore, though. It's been a while. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to see that. I just love a good kind of feel good movie about teen girls. Like I, I was really into the like click series when I was a kid. I, it, there, I had a weird relationship with the idea of the popular girls. Like I was definitely more into like Heather's and Jawbreaker, but there's always something fascinating about like the beautiful like teen queens at the same time. So I've I've just like always kind of loved the teen like come together and and get rid of like toxicity in high school, but also kind of like reveling in the drama of high school. I totally love those movies, and I I really can't think of a like a modern example of those. They had like a heyday in the late '90s and the 2000s. There's been like a couple throwbacks, I would say, like that are like sex minded. Mm-hmm. Like they're about like sexual discoveries, yeah. so, like blockers. Right, exactly. Did you see Never Have I Ever on Netflix this year? It's like a um a TV series. No, I have I did not see that. It's very funny. It, it can be a little mean too, which hits on that like Heather's Mean Girls. Right. Like there's a little bit of cruelty to those movies that uh, Never Have I Ever touches on because yeah. the protagonist is like a real sourpuss. In a great way. <laughs> Wonderful. Also, like it seems like there's been a Broadway revival of those. Um, movies like I know now there's a Mean Girls Broadway musical um, there's also a Heather's musical but yeah they haven't really like come back into the film for so what have you been watching Brandon oh good question <laughs> I've also been watching a lot of trashy reality television shows I've, I've gone through so many competition shows mm-hmm. based on like art projects yes you know like British Bake Off is what I'm currently on, but I went through like eight different fashion shows and makeup and drag and basically every kind of like reality show where there's like a product at the end of every episode. That's like my groove recently. Did you see Glow Up? I did. Both seasons. Yes. Ding dong, darling. (laughs) Ding dong. Yes. Oh my God. She is honestly one of my favorite competition show judges just because she gets so excited like as she's critiquing somebody she really loves, she just starts shouting and she starts ding-donging and it just like gives me so much joy. She goes into like a trance. Yes. Like she's like not in the studio anymore. <laughs> she like astral projects. This is marvelous. Ding-dong. Amazing. <laughs> but uh, movie-wise, like the last couple weeks, I've been watching a lot of melodramas, mm-hmm. obviously, because that's kind of the vibe of today's episode. Right. I watched a couple, too, from Ida Lupino, mm-hmm. who was an actress in the 40s and 50s. Oh. She started as an actress anyway. And then partway into her career, partially because she got polio and was like bedridden for a while, oh God. decided to shift into making movies herself. And her and her husband, Collar Young, I think his name was, they started a production company together called The Filmmakers. And they had a couple, like, reasonable hits, like The Hitchhiker is kind of like a noir classic. Mm-hmm. And The Bigamist is this moralistic story about, like, a man who has two wives. <laughs> but this week I watched, like, her first two movies, her, like, first credited directorial debut and also the first movie she directed but she didn't get credit for because mm-hmm. it was in 1949 both of these movies came out. She started 
producing and co-writing on this movie called Not Wanted. And three days into the shoot, the director they hired for the movie got a heart attack. Oh, and God. And she like, took over. And it seems like she just like was ready to spring into action. Like it was kind of her movie already. <laughs> yeah. So you have this like very simplistic story about this girl. It's just like a teenager and she gets pregnant with the baby of this like pianist. this like jazz guy. Mm-hmm. He's like super cool. And it turns out he's really not as in love with her as he kind of pretended to be. And he like leaves her to deal with it on her own. Mm-hmm. So she's just like unwed teenage mother in the big city trying to make it on her own and like kind of fails at it. So it feels a little bit like a lot of 50s and 40s like Road to Ruin movies where it's kind of like a cautionary tale about getting pregnant before you're married. Right. But in those movies, usually it's like kind of wagging a finger at the girl like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. But in this case, it's like super sympathetic with her. And it's more like about how her parents and the father and everybody else kind of abandons her Mm -hmm. and leaves her alone. So she has no safety net. Yeah. The systems that should be there for her are not basically. Right. But beyond that, like, sympathy, it's not that interesting. The sequence where she gives birth is actually, like, really incredible. She, like, it's like a first-person point of view. You're, like, on the table giving birth, and, like, the surgery lights are, like, kind of blinding you. And that part's crazy. But, like, most of the movie's pretty well-behaved. Yeah. But the same year, her first, like, actual directorial film that she got credit for was called Never Fear. And... Basically, when Ida Lupino got polio, she was, like, in bed a lot, like, alone with her thoughts for the first time. And she was like, I can't be young and beautiful and able-bodied forever, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I need to, like, come up with a skill that has nothing to do with, like, my talents as, like, an actress. Like, I'm not going to be, like, an on-screen beauty forever. Mm -hmm. So she's like, I want to make movies. And this movie was, like, during the polio crisis in America. And it did poorly because it was such a grim subject. But it comes from this, like, personal place where, like, the main character is this, like, ballet dancer who gets polio and spends the entire movie, like, alone and, like, bitter and, like, really hating her body for not allowing her to um, perform her art the way that she wanted to Mm -hmm. and rejecting help from other people. I don't know. It just comes from, like, a personal place in, like, an interesting way. Yeah. It seems like basically her processing in real time what she would have to do in order to be successful going forward. And, and you know, obviously abandoning the thing that made her, that, that she could subsist on for her life leading up to this moment. The implication in both movies is that these women need to be married mm. to men to, like, have a place in the world. And, like, in Never Fear, especially, she's, like, alone bedridden in this hospital and she like starts to realize this is the first time in my life I've ever been by myself and had to make choices for myself Mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with like seeking a husband there's like a terror to that like it's like the world like fell from under her but then she like sort of like gains her footing and you know trains to be able to walk again and but those like sweaty internal monologues about like what do I do now my Mm -hmm. whole world's gone also you know watching this right now in the middle of like a health pandemic right (laughs) and like being trapped alone in rooms with your internal monologue. I don't know. It, it felt really strong. I didn't like either of these as much as The Hitchhiker or The Bigamist, mm-hmm. but um, it was interesting to see like a filmmaker getting their feet and finding a love for making movies yeah. and like just becoming their own like a tourist voice on their own. I don't know. Yeah. Like, early Lila Lupino, pretty interesting melodramas. I, I'm really interested in seeing directors first kind of stumbling blocks like they're for I mean, it's it sounds like kind of she's like 
born as a director as like a you know like a blind calf or something like stumbling around and figuring out what she was going to do yeah I mean even if I just look at the progress in my own like very narrow artistic pursuits it's just fascinating to see somebody build and build throughout their career yeah and I feel like the movie from her that gets the most attention is the hitchhiker which is basically billed as like the first noir film directed by a woman Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like a macho genre right. in a lot of ways. So it's kind of interesting to see her in this other area of which, you know, melodramas at the time were often called like women's pictures. Mm-hmm. So that's like a completely different angle from her. And as a result, aren't really like paid as much attention to mm-hmm. when there's some filmmaking stuff and in, in never fear that's just as like sweaty and weird as the stuff in the hitchhiker. Yeah. Yeah. It is worth going back and like looking at, people's like early work sometimes because you get to see these like personal stabs at things right and i'm like a sweaty and weird person so (laughs) you know sweaty weird movies are like totally totally up my alley you know and i also like sometimes i long for you know being able to stay at home all day and not have to worry about like having a job like i kind of envy in my worst moments, I envy women that could just like have their lives taken care of. But at the same time, like there is a real horror in being totally dependent upon somebody else for your own personal success. So I mean, independence, thinking about being alone in dire circumstances and having not having the person that I need to rely on. I mean, it was a real fear for women. So you know, I'm glad I can have a job. And if I ever get polio, which probably won't happen, then I'll be able to take care of myself. Don't worry, there's plenty of other obscure diseases that might come for you right. uh, and viruses. Right. And yeah. And like not so obscure <laughs> diseases as well. Yeah, true. <laughs> as promised, today we are going to talk about more melodramas. I feel like that's the overriding link in all these movies. Yes. Other than that, they were directed all by Pedro Almodovar. Yes. Hooray. We're going to talk about a very specific era in his career, but before we get there, we might just do an overview of just like what our experience with him is and how we arrived here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. By the right. way, Pedro right. Almodovar. Uh, you, you can call it however you want. Oh, yes. You know, in Italy, they call me Aldo Samovar which is a mix of two words, Aldo and Samovar, you know, the, the Russian. Yes, I like an old cat. So, yeah. and, I, and I never say, now you are wrong. So, anyway, if you want to pronounce it like if you were Spanish, excuse me that I'm so long. <laughs> then it is Pedro Almodovar. Almodovar? This yeah. Is, I, exactly. may, I may say but with I, Pedro. I know it's difficult, we, so. <laughs> yeah, then, I might just call you Pedro. Yeah, uh, yeah. this is great. We, we're here five minutes. We've not got past his name yet. <laughs> So at the beginning of this year, if you can remember that far back, <laughs> we did an episode where we talked about our favorite movies of 2019, and I asked everybody what movie they wish they could have caught up with before we recorded that episode, and your answer was Almodovar's most recent film, Pain and Glory. Yes. And there were like a couple things about that that I found interesting, and one was that I didn't feel like I had done enough homework on Almodovar to watch that movie because it's like partly autobiographical right and also it's just not really available like right it played in New Orleans very briefly Mm -hmm. and 
even now, like almost a full year after it had its like Oscar run, it's only available as like a digital purchase for like $13. Wait, it's still not available for rent? No. You have to have the Stars app or you pay $13 oh, to buy gotcha. it digitally. Yeah. So we're not doing that yet. And I promise that <laughs> we will build an episode around that movie once it's like easily accessible. Yeah. But in the meantime, we found a new entry into Almodovar, which is that for our movie of the month in September, probably the day before this podcast is getting posted, we will have a movie of the minute discussion. You, me, Brittany and Boomer talking about his 1988 film, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Mm -hmm. It is a painfully long acronym. To, right, type, right. <laughs> to type out. I basically have just been shortening it to Women on the Verge yeah. because <laughs> it's a long title. <laughs> so this felt like a great time to actually do the homework. Like what is like classic Almodovar or Almodovar? I'm still getting mm-hmm. the pronunciation of his name correctly because of that accent mark right. that I had not known until recently. So I'm like <laughs> retraining myself. Yeah. I have a few questions at the top of this. I don't know what your history with Almodovar is, but you're the one that's bringing him to the table. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about how you discovered him. I'm curious about where Women on the Verge fits in with his like career for you. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an early comedy, but it was like one of his first bigger hits. Yes. And then today we actually tried to determine like what his classics are. Like what is his classic period? And we kind of nailed it down in this like basically his like 2000s era, like from 1999 mm-hmm. to 2006. We watched four movies in a row that were very like awardsy and like critically acclaimed. And so I want to know, like, what your relationship to those movies are. So basically, I just want, like, a full spectrum of, like, what is your relationship with Almodovar and the movies we're talking about today? I think the first time I ever heard of Almodovar was in high school or maybe middle school or high school. And actually, the first movie that I kind of heard about was The Skin I Live In, which is one of his later movies. But... I think I was exposed to it because I saw it in some magazine and it had Antonio Banderas and it was like a weird movie. And at that point in my life, I was just all about weird movies. Um, but I just wasn't able to see it at all. But he, he kind of like was pushed onto my radar through these like ancillary movies. I think my mom also talked about Penelope Cruz in uh, Broken Embraces and Volver she's one of his like go-to actresses and I had only seen her in movies like Sahara, like these big budget movies where she was basically like the hot foreign woman. So I just was vaguely aware of him. Then my freshman year of college, I was in a Spanish um, grammar and composition class. So we were watching all of these Spanish language movies and Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown was one of those movies. That was the first movie I ever saw of his. And it was just like really striking to me visually, absolutely. I mean, all of his movies are visually beautiful. It had these like these scenes that were kind of dreamlike. Um, the movie itself is this kind of like madcap comedy with like spiked gazpacho and (laughs) this like mambo cab driver who plays mambo and he has like every amenity in his cab that you could think of. They're just like all these kind of beautiful, bizarre characters and these really like visually gorgeous scenes. So that was like the first time that I was ever really exposed to him and I was just like totally fascinated by him. He was not like any director that I had ever seen. So 
since then I've seen, I have seen The Skin I Live In Now, which is actually maybe my least favorite movie by him. Um, and then I watched All About My Mother. I watched Volver, talked to her. And I think the thing that I continue to be drawn to in his films are the, the visual style, which is gorgeous. It's like reading through a glossy magazine, basically. Very vibrant reds, interesting um, shots, interesting compositions. And then these like plots that almost feel like, like soap opera Mad Libs. It's like a woman goes to um, seek out her former husband, who is a trans prostitute, and comes across a nun who is pregnant and also HIV positive, and two lesbian actresses in a theater troupe. You don't notice how complicated that is until you're in the theater. Yeah, of it. until you try to describe the movie to somebody, then you're like, oh, this is like a totally insane plot. But he he maintains this kind of like soap opera camp style, but he also like, in my opinion, he feels very sincerely towards his characters. Like he, yeah. he does respect them. And that's just like something that I think is totally fascinating. Another thing that I like about Almodovar is that he was attempting to get into film while Francisco Franco was still the dictator in Spain. He actually tried to go to film school in Madrid and then Franco like shut down the film school. So he had to like try to teach himself film. And then um, once Franco died in 75, there was this like renaissance of culture in Spain called La Movida Madrileña, which is, which is based in Madrid. And it was like all about sexual transgression and like cultural freedom. And he was a big part of that. So I think that energy is like very apparent in his films. Yeah, they have this like kind of like artificial like Pee-wee's Playhouse kind of like set design to yeah, them. Yeah, totally. But then the actual content is like really transgressive. There's a lot of sexual assault in these movies. Yes. And murder and suicide and revenge and... Incest. Heroin addiction. Right. Yeah, lots of heroin addiction. But at the end of it, when you're like watching them, you're like, that was actually a breezy light comedy. <laughs> How? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Right, exactly. And I was actually talking to James about about his movies, and he pointed out that, like, a lot of movies you can kind of succinctly characterize the plot, like this person goes to accomplish this task. And it's, like, impossible with Almodovar movies, but they they always totally work. Like, they're confusing and all over the place, but it just it feels like such a cohesive world that he's created. And I think that's another thing. It's like all of his movies kind of, they kind of blend genres, like they're comedies and they're dramas. And then um, The Skin I Live In is definitely like a horror movie also, but it still feels like, I mean, it just feels like you're living in his mind for like an hour and a half. And it c totally makes sense until you try to describe it to somebody else. Well, I guess my question then is like, we had a hard time picking just a few movies to cover mm -hmm. Almodovar as a topic. Right. Because he has like, I think almost two dozen features yeah, under like, his belt. I think he has 21 feature films. That's a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> yeah. And it took us a while to hone in on just like a few movies to watch. And when we got to the three or four we're going to discuss today... I'm looking at them and they were all like consecutive in the like late 90s to mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't know what to call this period of his career because it is different than that, like Pee Wee's Playhouse, like artificiality of women on the verge. It's like this Oscar winning awards bait kind of stuff, but he's still being just as transgressive and alienating as ever before. And they're all like melodramas. They're all like Circean women's pictures Mm -hmm. that happen to have all this like violent uh, stuff (laughs) happening in the plot. (laughs) Right. But yeah, it's like hard to like come up with a name or like pinpoint what this era of his career was, but it really just feels like this is what people think of as like classic Almodovar is like these four or so movies from like this time in the 2000s. Yeah. I think Women on the Verge was his first critically acclaimed and commercially successful film. So, and that was in... Uh, released in the 80s, right? Like the late Mm -hmm. 80s. Yeah. So, I mean, and even Women on the Verge is very different visually, in my opinion, um, from the three films that we watched for this podcast. And I don't know if it's that he started to kind of like adjust his filming after becoming commercially successful or like, like to match more of like a mainstream I, even though it's still like distinctly his style. I don't know if it's that the production quality went up after he became commercially successful. I know he was like filming on Super 8s when he first started out. But it does feel like it becomes less artificial, even between All About My Mother, honestly, and like Bad Education to me. Yeah. I haven't seen Pain and Glory, but that film looks even more to me like I wouldn't even necessarily know that it was Almodovar if I wasn't already, like, so into him. Right. So, so yeah, I'm not sure, like, what it is. But I but I do feel like that tends to happen when filmmakers become more and more successful. I think their filming styles can sometimes become less creative because they can rely on, like, more expensive equipment. And, and less distinctive visually. Also, you're like 20 years older, right? Like, right. The difference between John Waters, the like uh, speed freak 17 year old versus John Waters, the like 40 something millionaire who's making <laughs> mainstream comedies. You kind of age out of some of that transgressive, like DIY handmade stuff. I yeah. think if you're actually in the industry for long enough. Yeah. Well, I think one other thing is that when, like when he first started making movies right after after Franco died, he was like so focused on the transgression as a rebellion against the like oppressive social dictates during Franco's dictatorship. And he, I mean, he said that explicitly. He was just like, like, I think one of his first movies is just called like, fuck me, fuck me, fuck me, Tim. Yeah. It was Mm -hmm. like all about the sex and transgression and the underground queer community in Madrid but but they're like punk singers that do the same thing. It's like th- they have a point that they want to make and then they make it over and over and over again. And then at some point, it's like they age out of the point. But they're, you know, maybe their viewpoint has matured and it's changed in a way that they're still celebrating transgression, but not in such a such an explicit way. I got to say, just like personally... Watching these movies has been very, like, great. And this is, like, me doing the homework. Like, I feel like I know who he is as a filmmaker now. Mm -hmm. But if we had watched three or four movies from that Women on the Verge period, from that, like, transgressive stuff, Mm -hmm. I probably would have been even more into these. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I understand that these are more technically proficient films. And this is, like, 
a very accomplished filmmaker, like at the height of his powers, right. and this like hot streak that we we kind of carved out. But I missed some of the handmade flaws and like idiosyncrasies of Women on the Verge, which yeah. really does feel just like a small group of people putting on a show, mm-hmm. and it's really garish but also gorgeous. So yeah, now that I have this like foundation. I do want to go back and watch some of those earlier movies and be offended <laughs> the way everyone else was you right. know, before I was born. Yeah. And I, and again, it's like, I feel like women on the verge was actually like kind of the end of that transgressive period. I mean, I think he made a few movies after that, that were kind of in a similar vein, but like that was the point that he became really, really popular. And, and I think it was like the highest grossing Spanish film at the time so like I can't even imagine what his earlier films were like and he was just like like shooting constantly and he was like obsessed with sex and then so we really kind of caught him as he's going into like a global release arena Um, yeah so I would absolutely love to go back even further and like really soak up the work that he was doing um, during the Madrilinian movement. Another cool thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that he carried over a lot of the actors from that period into these movies. Mm-hmm. Like he reuses people now, you know, famous people right. like Penelope Cruz will show up in his movies over and over again, but strange looking background <laughs> actors from his earlier films um, became famous from from being in his movies in the first place, which is kind of great. Yeah. You'll see them like repeat over and over and over again. The more you watch these movies, it's kind of like John Waters. You see the same cast and crew sort of like playing new characters every movie. And well, and a lot of his movies are about communities in film and theater and art. So I feel like the sense that I get is that he has this community and yeah, he just kind of brings them along to his projects. He's not really focused on like picking out the biggest stars for his films. It's all about the stories of the people, the the characters that he's created and like the community that he's built around him kind of flesh those people out. And I think he even said that like he'll write characters, but then when the actor is chosen for the part, he'll kind of like rewrite the part for them because he feels like the part should be a mirror for the actor. Um, So I just feel like he has close connections and he really cares about like the actors as artists in their own right within his films. There's rape, there's murder in this movie, yet it's a comedy. How do you do it? I have to tell you a secret. You need a lot of talent to do that. Oh, yeah? No, I'm not to offend anyone. Sure. Because, uh, no, and this is serious. I mean, the, the film released already in all Europe, and nobody was offended. They were laughing all the time. Right. Now, that's something that in America, if you came out with a movie like that, and it has those topics, a lot of Americans would get uptight. Do you think Americans are too uptight about their movies? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think this, the, the American audience is very bad treated by the MPAA. You know, Motion Picture Association of America. Okay. They think that the American audience is silly, and I'm not agreeing. So let's call this Almodovar's hot streak. Yes. I think that, that might be what we're going to call it. Yeah. And it started with All About My Mother in 1999, 
which is the movie that he won, I think, Best Director at Cannes for. Mm-hmm. And I think he won Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars that year as well. Yeah, I think this is his like most famous movie. If people have heard of Almodovar, most of them know all about my mother. Yeah, so it was released in 1999, and it's a, it centers on this woman, Manuela, who has... Uh, she's a single mother with a son named Esteban, and he is an aspiring writer, and he's hit by a car while he's chasing the star f- from a theatrical production of Streetcar Named Desire in Madrid. So... Uh, Manuela goes on a journey to find Esteban's father, who she is estranged from. And along the way, she meets her old friend, who is a trans woman uh, named Agrado. She meets a pregnant nun who is HIV positive named Rosa. And she kind of runs back into the pair of women starring in A Streetcar Named Desire that um, her son was attempting to get an autograph from. So the story kind of centers around um, Rosa's pregnancy and the, the idea of motherhood generally and this community of women kind of um, struggling through uh, their own personal adversities. Of the three movies that we watched for this podcast, I think... I would have to say this is my favorite one. Me too. Oh, okay, cool. What were your thoughts about All About My Mother? It just does everything that he is great at. Yes. The humor is very funny, but it's not forced. Like, he has, like, a very natural sense of humor to him. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of, like, Serkian melodrama that is just unembarrassed. Like, it's not scared to be this, like, my son died... And I'm going to search like the movie can be campy, but it's not campy about the emotions. The emotions Mm -hmm. are over the top and it's just played that way. And that's fine. Yeah. Also, it's a movie about complex women. Yes. Which is just his deal. Like when he's at his best, he populates his films with these women that are multidimensional and like do fucked up things and betray each other, but still love each other. Mm -hmm. And it's not the kind of like good representation of women's lives that people are pushing for. It's like a little more like dirtier and like more human than that. Right. Also it's, I I would say out of this batch, at least it's the one that's the most like artificially beautiful, Mm -hmm. especially that shot of the mother standing in front of the advertisement for the streetcar named desire play. So there's just this giant like poster of the actress's face and she's standing in front of it. And it's just like, she's inside of a magazine layout. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And then beyond all of that, just like the complexity of the plot where you don't realize how absurdly intricate it is until you're in the thick of it. (laughs) There's a point where she's living with her son's brother's mother's mother. And to explain how she got to that, sub level of like interconnected (laughs) relationships would take like 15 more minutes than the plot synopsis you already did. Right. Like all the different character relationships in this movie are really complex, but it sneaks up on you. Like you don't realize how much groundwork he's laying for the drama until you're in like the third act. You're like, my God, how did we get here? (laughs) Right. So yeah, it just does everything he's good at, like exceptionally well. 
And the one thing that I love about this film is that there is like a real sense of love and joy that sometimes like isn't communicated in his movies, especially the other, the other two films are like pretty dark in their own right. This, this movie has a lot of, you know, complicated ground to cover. It has a lot of, you know, people addicted to heroin, sex workers being abused by Johns. It's, it, there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of like negative shit happening, but the relationships between the women are like so strong and so real that it, it still feels like a really heartfelt, like beautiful movie. And I know you mentioned the characterization of women. That is one of my favorite things about Almodovar movies. Um, he said over and over again that he's inspired by women. He was raised by women. Um, he's always found women to be the most interesting characters. And there are other, uh, like Ingmar Bergman, for instance, you know, makes films about women that are always kind of fraught. And there's this like, this depiction of female toxicity that's like really negative. Like it feels like, a movie by a man about how kind of like strange and horrible women can be. And Almodovar makes these movies that always seem like they're honoring women. And if anything, kind of like pointing out how horrible men can be. Yeah, I think there's like a way that he has where he can have women do fucked up things, but it doesn't feel like a commentary on the gen- on the gender as right. a whole. Because there's such a broad spectrum of women in his films that, like, no one woman can represent the gender. Right. So, like, let's say you have a movie where there's, like, 20 men and one female character. That's, like, so much pressure on that character to represent so much. definitely. But if you have 20 different women and they all have different complex lives and different, like interests and personalities like then you have the freedom to do whatever you want yeah exactly and it's not even like forced in any way like Mm -hmm. i'm particularly thinking of that scene where the mother the actress the prostitute and the nun are all sitting around (laughs) having like cocktails yes and it's like a scene that goes nowhere really it's just them hanging out but it feels like such a strong vision of like a femme community yeah. that really just like encapsulates the entire movie and means a lot thematically, even though nothing really happens in it. Yeah. And I think the nun is like joking about, she's like, yeah, I love the word cock and I love the word prick. And then um, the actress is like, I haven't had one of those in a couple of years. And then they all just like laugh together. Because she's lesbian. Right. right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it feels like such a natural depiction of like the kinds of conversations women have when they're totally comfortable, totally comfortable in a community and the kinds of like joyful moments that they have. There have been so many like male directors that have talked about and male writers that have talked about how hard it is to write female characters or to like, like shoot female characters. And there are so many people that get it so wrong and he just seems to get it so naturally. And I think part of it is that he like really honestly loves women and respects women and sees that like there's no monolith for a woman. Like they're, they're just as complex as men are obviously. Yeah. They're allowed to be 
actresses and nurses and artists and prostitutes and cis and trans (laughs) and like it really is overwhelming how many different lives are like weaved into this little story about basically a stalker who like (laughs) crosses the line a couple times but is just doing her best to grieve her son right i was really just impressed with how deceptively complex this movie is even like i don't know if we talked about this so much yet but like the way that his movies can reference other films yes. mm-hmm. or like just nest their themes in like previously existing works. Yeah. In this case, the title is referencing all about Eve and like in an early scene, uh, the mother and the son are like watching that film together or like the different performances of streetcar named mm-hmm. desire are like layered here where like that kind of confuses what timeline we're in, in in a couple moments. Yeah. Like it all feels like nested in on itself and like, it's like its own little galaxy. It has its own little like rules of how it operates and it's all very insular and self-referential. Yeah. And really the only way you can get into his films and like get on that vibe is to like watch a lot of them and sink further into it, you know? Yeah. I mean, and in this film and in um, Talk to Her and even Bad Education, like intertextuality is absolutely present in all of them performances within performances performances by the characters of their own material performances of material that is pre-existing and even in uh, women on the verge you know they have that that johnny guitar scene and he feels like he's so enmeshed in the world of film and theater and he like it's constantly informing his work in like a really beautiful way. And and just to see, I love watching the characters in his films be so moved by the work that other people have created. It's like he's honoring art within his own art all of the time. And especially like the that scene in The Streetcar Named Desire, it's just played over and over and over again. And like you can feel how it connects with Manuela and what she's gone through. And it, it just adds a layer to her complicated emotions around um, Lola, the father of her child. I feel like those like references are also like signaling that he knows what he's doing and he's in control of his tone. Yeah. Because these movies are so overly complex and like kind of like wildly erratic you might think that this is just somebody who's throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks Mm -hmm. but by like showing you different kind of like over-the-top melodramas through the ages that are like more canonized Mm -hmm. and like respected on like an institutional level he's like yeah i'm playing with these tones that have been carved out before by tennessee williams and by douglas sirk and by whoever else right he's like i i know what playground i'm tooling around in I'm in control of this like over the top tone and maybe that's what this period is. It's like him at his most controlled and like self-aware. Yeah. So to layer in those references uh, makes it even more like it's like a signal to the audience that you're in good hands maybe. Yeah. And especially, you know, obviously it is a play on all about Eve, you know, all about Eve is like two women kind of in contest with each other, but these highly dramatized melodramatic performances like he just has Betty Davis basically times six in his movies Uh, (laughs) yeah so I feel like he totally knows his wheelhouse and he honors his wheelhouse and every intertextual reference that he puts in his films is 
intentional. And I, I feel like it's never just like a call out to tell you how like how enmeshed he is in in the world of art. Like, oh, I, I can reference this play and I can reference this film. Like it always means something, which which I really appreciate. Yeah, I think that's a good transition into Talk to Her as well. Mm-hmm. From 2002, there is a silent era like sex comedy in that film. Yes. It's a fake version of a silent comedy called like The Shrinking Lover, I think. And this man takes a, it's like Charlie Chaplin style <laughs> character, takes a uh, shrinking potion that makes him go from like a fat man to too small. He like shrinks all the way down <laughs> to like small. an inch size. Yeah. And he basically violates his mad scientist girlfriend while she's sleeping. Um, we see in like full display him crawling inside of her vagina. Yeah. It's like giant test porn kind of like yeah, fantasy. This like huge foam. God, it's such a weird vagina. <laughs> it's so strange. <laughs> it looks it's like very artificial. Turf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and. In doing that, I think he's like signaling that he knows how fucked up the politics are in the sexual dynamics of the rest of the film. Because mm-hmm. it really is just like a 30 second comedic spoof that like is the only breakaway from the reality of the movie, yeah. really. But it really just signals so much. Like, I know that old Hollywood comedies have like bad sexual politics, mm-hmm. and I'm going to explore that in the rest of the film. And it's especially weird that that scene is kind of a stand-in for a rape scene. Yeah. Like, we don't see the sexual assault that, like, drives a lot of the plot of the film. Instead, we see this, like, silent era comedy spoof. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he he knows and he, like, weaponizes these, like, references to older movies. Um, And that one really stuck out to me particularly because it's funny. It is, like, amusing watching it play out. Right. But the more you think about, like, what's happening in the scene, you're like, God, this is so deeply fucked up. Right. And it only makes the rest of the film more fucked up in comparison. Yeah. And that short film is so haunting to me. I mean, and one aspect of his movies is that, like, all of his films kind of, like, break away from me sometimes. So I'll be, like, thinking about something else and then like that scene will pop into my head and I can't remember where it's from because it's like already nested in his film. So I just think like there's this black and white movie where this guy like crawled into this woman's vagina and like what, like where did I see that? And then I remember it's, it's one of his films. But I think that that scene was so effective because obviously he doesn't shy away from transgression, but I'm so glad that he didn't show the rape scene. Right. It's not clear from that scene that he's doing something against her consent other than the fact that she's obviously asleep and this is not like a planned thing between them. But you could fool yourself into thinking that he is acting as like a compassionate lover and that's what Benigno believes about himself, that he is like the lover for Alicia and this is like, a consensual relationship, but it's like deeply corrupted. Yeah. There are so many filmmakers that use like rape as a salacious image for shock. And he, he just like communicates the complexity of that violation without, you know, showing it for, for any shock value. 
what I usually hate in sexual assault films, and it really is like the one taboo that like really turns me off Mm -hmm. when movies rely on it, is that it, it usually is a cheap way to build tension and to make people sympathetic to a woman. Right. Or it's played for like visual titillation sometimes, yeah. especially in like 70s movies. Right. That really makes me angry as well. Yeah. But in this case, and I think this is what needs to happen if you are going to bring that up, is if you are going to depict sexual assault or like use it as a plot point, the movie kind of has to be about that. It has to like deal with the fallout of it mm-hmm. and the moral implications of it. And I feel like Talk to Her, the entire film is kind of about masculine possessiveness and like self-absorbed masculine romance. Mm -hmm. So Benigno and Alicia, that's like the main relationship that the movie's commenting on Mm -hmm. as a form of sexual assault. He is a stalker who watches this dancer from across the street. He can see from his apartment window in like a dance studio watching her practice and then tracks her down to the point where when she is put into a coma via a car accident, which is a very soap opera right. <laughs> plot device. He like finagles his way into her care. He's like bathing her yeah. unconscious body and has this whole internal monologue about the fact that they are in love. Mm-hmm. And when he speaks to her while she's speaking, like the talk to her title is like a one-sided relationship. Right. And the other man in the movie sees a woman on TV. She's a bullfighter and famous, a matador. And he is a journalist. And he's like, I want to meet that woman. Mm-hmm. He like has this instant attraction to her and does kind of a similar thing. He like stalks her. He tracks her down. But because he's less alarming. Right. Benigno is like Norman Bates. He's like very obviously fucked up and he's got this like fucked up relationship with his mother. Mm -hmm. And like the instant you look at him, you're like, oh, something's wrong there. Yeah. But this guy, he's just sort of a normal dude. And he goes through the same like one sided courting rituals. And he has these long conversations with this girlfriend who eventually stalks and like woos into a relationship where he's the only one talking for like an hour. Mm -hmm. He's the only one saying anything. And basically his girlfriend gets mauled by a bull in a matador accident. And the two of them are alone in a hospital watching over their loves of their lives while they're in comas. Yeah. And he says to Benigno, like, you know, this is fucked up. You're not in love with her. Your entire relationship is a monologue. It's all in your own head. Mm-hmm. When the whole movie is like drawing parallels to like the fact that he is doing the exact same thing to this woman. Right. That he's supposedly in love with. But that's just normal masculine relationship behavior. Yeah. A lot of people have problems with this movie, and I get it, in that it seems sympathetic to the Norman Bates character, in that he's kind of pathetic, even though he obviously rapes this woman who's in a coma. But I'm I'm definitely on a level of, like, representation is not endorsement here. Like, he is obviously a creep. And I think what the movie is doing is drawing parallels to how creepy this other guy is who's doing the same things but is less overt about it. Right. Like his red flags are a little more hidden because he's handsome and he has more of like a social ease about him. Mm -hmm. I totally get why this movie turns people off because it is gross and upsetting. But I found that like to be a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. And I think it's supposed to be gross and upsetting. And I think that... Like you said, people think that um, Benigno is supposed to be this sympathetic character, but the truth is that 
men who prefer to be in a one-sided relationship with a woman, like they do feel like they love that person and they feel like that is love. And Benigno is 100% convinced in his relationship with Alicia, even though it could never happen unless she like went into a coma. And he even says, like he's imprisoned at the end of the movie and he says, you know, I love that it's been raining lately uh, it was raining the day that Alicia got into her accident because that like their relationship never would have happened if she wasn't like totally unconscious. So because he's not painted as this like evil man with evil intentions, people think that it's a sympathetic movie, but I think that that shows how pernicious that attitude can be that you can believe what you're doing with somebody is is just part of a normal relationship. Like th- that scene with Lydia and Marco, the other couple, where she's basically trying to tell him, like, I'm going back with my bullfighter guy. I don't want to be with you anymore. And she keeps telling him, like, we need to talk after the bullfight. I need to talk to you. And he says, you know, we've been talking for an hour. And she said, no, you've been talking. Men forget that you have to... A one-sided relationship isn't love. So I don't know. I, I never felt the sympathy for Benigno that other people felt, even though he was like not a 100% evil person. Obviously, he's a total creep. But I just think that that adds complexity to the male relationship mentality in general. The thing is that obviously that guy is a creep. Like right. that comes across so yeah. clearly. Super and creepy. I really feel like the Norman Bates quality is like pronounced. Yeah. I think there's even like a psycho poster in the background when he goes to the psychiatrist's office, which is a really <laughs> weird thing for a psychiatrist to have on the wall. <laughs> yeah. But there's nowhere for that to go. Like, he's a creep. That's how it is. The relationship that he has with his comatose patient is obviously morally wrong. Yeah. And that's just where we are. Right, that's what it is. So the question is, like, what does that have to do with this other story? Mm-hmm. Like, this other guy who's courting this woman who he saw on TV and tracked down, and like... Right. He did, like, eventually, like, work his way into her life in, like, the sort of, like, genuine way, but it's because his, like, creepiness wasn't as immediately recognizable. And when you're questioning, like, where is this going, how these two things relate, you really just have to draw parallels between the two of them. And I feel like that's what the movie's doing on a whole. Yeah. And what's really weird about that is like the scene where they wheel out their two girlfriends to the balcony. Oh my God, that was so weird. (laughs) (laughs) And Benigno's like, what do you think they would talk about? Which is like (laughs) the closest the movie this comes to like passing the Bechdel test. Like there's no two women talking to each other in this film. This is a film about men. Right. Which is not the Almodovar quality that we're looking for in these movies but i feel like at that point you have to see it as the movie commenting on masculinity and the fact that they don't even really care what these two women would talk about it's like more about their idea of them well and he even suggests like when they're out there he says oh it's it looks like they could be talking about us which is like the most self-centered thing to suggest about these two women that have like gone into comas and probably want nothing to do with these men anymore I think the scene to me that bridges them together initially is the very first scene, which is another great example of intertextuality in Almodovar movies, which is by coincidence, 
Marco and Benigno are both seated together at a theater presentation of, I think it's Hotel Munchen, but it's this theater production where there are these two women in these white slips and their eyes are closed and they're kind of, the stage is covered in chairs and tables. And so these women are kind of like flinging themselves across the stage and there's this distraught man who is following them in the front and flinging these chairs and tables out of their way. And this performance brings Marco to tears. He's totally moved. And Benigno talks about the performance to Alicia, which is the first time that we see them together, I think. He, he says, oh, it was so beautiful. It was so moving. The man I was sitting next to was moved to tears. And the theater performance is kind of about dependency and also about, you know, these women that are vulnerable and incapacitated and this man that is helping them, but, but in a way that they can't even see or recognize. That's kind of like the core of Marco and Benigno to me. It's like they're these men who feel like they've dedicated themselves to the love of these women, but it's it's not really a true connection. It's like they're just kind of entranced by their own martyrdom, basically. It's actually pretty wild how much work that theater-going experience does. Mm-hmm. Like, especially since it's bookended, at the end it wraps back around to that theater yeah. again, and you see a different performance. It does a lot. Like the first time you see those two characters, Marco's weeping and genuinely moved by this experience that he's projecting something onto. We Mm -hmm. don't really know why he's crying, but obviously there's something that that he's bringing to the table that the play is not actually doing. Right. And that, you know, says a lot about how he relates to things. And then Benigno looks over and is like, wow, this guy's crying. This must be good. Like he doesn't have (laughs) his own imagination about like what's actually transpiring on the stage. He's just like basing his reactions to things on other people, Mm -hmm. which is very indicative of how like sociopathic he kind of is. Like he doesn't really know how to react to things. He has to like guess based on other people's (laughs) natural reactions. Yeah. And then there's also the fact that Geraldine Chapman, uh, Charlie Chaplin's daughter is like, the dance instructor at that ballet and like runs that dance studio, yeah. which plays into, you know, the whole silent era artifice of the film as well. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing like wraps up back at that dance studio again, where Marco basically repeats Benigno's sins and right. like inserts himself into Alicia's life without her consent. Yes. Without meeting her on equal grounds of knowledge. And in those scenes, those are the only two instances I could think of where, like, women have, like, emotional, internal lives in this film Mm -hmm. in any, like, significant way. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. There's just a lot going on in those, like, opening and closing scenes where, like, it would be easy to look at them and be like, I guess that's just, like, place setting that really has nothing to do with anything. But they have a lot of, like, weight to pull. I Man, honestly, I did not know what to make of the ending because it... Each couple is introduced with like their names as title cards together, basically. So when Alicia and um, Benigno's relationship is introduced, it says Benigno and Alicia as Benigno is talking at Alicia. And the same thing happens with Marco and Lydia. So at the very end, 
Marco meets up with Alicia at the theater and the same thing happens. It's like beginning their story together. And the ending theater scene was so, it it just seemed like a kind of a joyful scene, like these men and women dancing together. And like the tone of the ending didn't really make sense to me in the context of the film. Like I didn't know if, Basically, I didn't know how Almodovar felt about Alicia and Marco's relationship at the end. But it was just, it was like he didn't learn anything from Benigno at all. He literally steps into Benigno's place. He moves into his old apartment. He Yeah, unfortunately, I think he learned everything from Benigno. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, it was just, I mean, it was just like such a bummer. Like, she's finally awake and alive. She is not impregnant like she does not have Benigno's child thank god she's going through physical therapy she's like regaining her life as a dancer and then she's this guy that's like ogled her and while she's in a coma like he's just like stared at her bare breasts and she has no idea that he's done that he's like sat in a room with her while she was in a coma like is thrust together with him and I think like you said, basically because he's not an alarming person. Like he's a pretty charismatic guy that has like just totally inserted himself into her life with a totally imbalanced relationship. He's doing the exact same thing that Benigno did to her, but Mm -hmm. like her reaction to Benigno versus her reaction to him are like two totally different things. Right. Like she's intrigued by him. Whereas Benigno is like such a red flag outright that she's like, I got to get away from this guy. (laughs) Yeah, he's just got those eyes. They're not good ones. They're scary eyes. I think there is there is that scene at the end where like Alicia is kind of making eyes with Marco and then the dance teacher sees them and she's like she kind of like ushers Alicia into the theater room like, hey, let's get out of here. And then she confronts Marco a little bit. She's like, we'll have to talk about this later. And he says, it's simpler than you think it is. And she says, basically, like, nothing is simple. And it's like he doesn't understand, again, that he has really no right to Alicia at all, even though he's, I mean, he has said to Benigno, like, oh, yeah, of course I like her. She's, she's beautiful. He's like stared at her while she's in a coma. It's just like, he, he hasn't learned anything, basically, or he has learned everything. I think that's him like completing his transformation. Like he starts (laughs) off as like a normal guy, or at least we see him as a normal guy. And then by the end we recognize like the most toxic parts of that. Yeah. And like, I don't see that ending as like an endorsement of his relationship with her. I see it as like a natural progression. Like, Oh, if he's going to project his desires and his Mm -hmm. internal monologue onto women, this is the next step. Right. It's no different than him seeing this matador on TV and like finding her beautiful yeah. and tracking her down. It's just like we know how fucked up that is because <laughs> we've watched it unfold in its entirety. Uh, whereas the first time he, he stalks a woman and like woos her, we didn't see the first part, you know? Right. And the movie teases a little bit of his background and shows him on these like missionary journalism trips, mm-hmm. but we don't get the full story there. And now that we have the full story at the end, we see how fucked up it is. Right. And only Geraldine Chapman as the dance teachers as someone who can like ring the alarm bell because there's so much knowledge you have to know about how fucked up that meeting is to find it alarming. And she, she's the only other person that's informed. You know, and I never really thought about 
his so he also had this relationship with this woman Angela and she's like addicted to drugs and his explanation is like her parents wanted wanted to take her away from him basically so she could be rehabilitated and that's the end of it but you also kind of get the sense that he loves being a savior for vulnerable women definitely the first time that Lydia actually like moves towards him as a romantic partner is because she he's told her that he wants to do a story about her and she she's kind of angry about it because she had no idea that that was his intention so he like gives her a ride home and she just says okay you know leave me alone and then she finds a snake in her house and she runs out of the home screaming he runs in the home and kills the snake for her and he's like moved to tears And she asks him why later, and he says, you know, with this other woman, Angela, the same thing happened. She had a fear of snakes, and there was I think there was a snake in their tent on a missionary trip, and she runs out of the tent totally naked. And he makes a point of identifying her vulnerability, and it it doesn't feel that different to be a caretaker for a woman in a coma when that's really the only active love that you're giving it's like it's like he is moved by the idea of a woman being dependent upon him he calls him desperate he says desperate as like yeah. the specific thing he's looking right. for i love a desperate oh woman. god and i i love the character of lydia i mean she's just a visually striking person she's like very very masculine she's a matador and she's a she's a strong she feels like a strong person in kind of a difficult part of her career. She just very publicly broke up with her matador boyfriend and and she's just in a rough patch basically. So I just don't think that she was like really a viable desperate woman for him ultimately. Like she was getting ready to move on from him before she was gored to death by a bull or gored into a coma by a bull. But yeah, he, I mean, Alicia feels like the next logical step for him. And we don't actually know, he's like an unreliable narrator, narrator, so we don't know how desperate his previous girlfriend actually was, because the only time we see her, she's perfectly happy and on her feet and marrying someone else. Yeah. And he's not moved to tears watching her get married because she's no longer fucked up. Right. Like he's not interested in her because she's a normal person and like healthy and like living a normal life. Right. So like, I don't know. He's like seeking harmed people. And I would even argue a little bit, um, and maybe this is because this is a gay filmmaker, that there's like a romantic spark between him and Benigno. And it's like referenced a few times. Mm-hmm. And he's like equally attracted to this like, Norman Bates guy who's like lonely and damaged. Right. And I think there is like a little bit of a romantic spark between the two of them that the movie doesn't really push, but it's there. Yeah. And even just in his like kind of dogged dedication to Benigno, who is like by all accounts, just like a very strange and creepy person that even Marco is kind of like put off by some of the things that Benigno says. Like Benigno at one point says that he wants to marry Alicia and Marco's like, are you like, you're crazy. Like you can't, 
you can't marry this woman. You don't have a real relationship with her, even though he's also supporting their relationship at the same time. Like he brings them travel guides and he says, oh yeah, you can read these with Alicia. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like he is put off by Benigno, but also like weirdly dedicated to him and like dedicated to the idea of his innocence Um, and, and like fighting for him in jail. He wants to like tell him that Alicia is alive when she comes out of the coma. And I was just like yelling at the screen, like leave this poor woman alone. Like Benigno isn't owed anything from Alicia. Like, why are you so compelled by this person? That's kind of like his rebound relationship uh, (laughs) between women. He's like, you know, I'm going to focus on Benigno for a while. This is, this is my desperate person for for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And Benigno doesn't have anybody else. So he, I guess he got, that might've been his most satisfying relationship, honestly. <laughs> it's his least one-sided relationship, at least from what we've seen. Yeah, that's true. So we just got really into the plot of that movie <laughs> because there's a lot to parse out, especially like on a moral level. Mm-hmm. Like what is the movie endorsing versus what? It, what is it like critiquing? I think is a question. Yeah. The next film, Bad Education from 2004, that one's even tougher, honestly. Like, <laughs> we could dig into the plot of this movie forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think what makes it special, unfortunately, it's another one of Almodovar's movies that is more interested in the lives of men than women. Mm-hmm. There's one woman in one level of reality in the film, but for the most part, it's like a series of men who are, like, interacting with each other over decades. Right. And what I think is interesting about it is how complex the plot is. So it's going to be hard to describe (laughs) without like really getting in the weeds. Yeah. So I'm going to do my best here. I think what makes it interesting is that it is a Russian nesting doll kind of experiment. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a little bit of Rashomon. Do you know that movie? Kurosawa movie? Yes. Mm -hmm. Where people retell the same story over and over again. And based on who the narrator is, the details and the textures change. Right. So, In this film, we have an actor who shows up at a director's office and he's like, here's a script I wrote about the childhood we had together when we were in grade school in Franco, Spain at Catholic school where one of us was abused by a priest Mm -hmm. and we were in love. So these two schoolboys are in love in, I believe, in like the 1960s, I want to say. Yeah, it would be the 60s. So it would probably it wouldn't be the 80s. Because he died in 75. So yeah, I would I would say the 60s. There's a priest who is also in love with one of the boys and is abusing him. And that is the main drive of the conflict of the film. is The abuse that that priest does to this child echoes throughout the decades. We have a hard time of getting a grasp of exactly what that means. Because the story is told by a lot of different people through a lot of different layers of artifice. Mm-hmm. And what's impressive about the movie is how that's laid out. The initial script that the director reads is an intensely artificial telling of the story. What we've come to find out is that the actor who presented the script to him is not actually the person who wrote it. We dig into what actually happened to the person who wrote it. They became a trans woman when they grew up, and they also became a heroin addict assumedly as like a form of self-medication because they were so fucked up from being abused as a child. Mm -hmm. And then we hear the version from the abuser himself, the priest retells 
how the story played out as the decades went on. Mm -hmm. And through that, like Rashomon, like different narrators perspective, we dig into a story from like, this is what the movie version, the artificial melodrama version of this tale would look like Mm -hmm. versus as we dig in deeper and deeper and deeper closer to the truth, what like a genuine tragedy looks like. This is actually what trauma does to people over the decades. And like a beautiful person who basically like a trans closeted child who will be abused because they're special, which happens so fucking often. Mm -hmm. It's really depressing. This is what that, that actually plays out like versus the original version, which we get is this kind of like revenge tale and this kind of like heist movie that plays out (laughs) at the school where she gets to live out her fantasy of like getting back at her abuser. The real version that we dig down into is a lot more tragic Mm -hmm. and we just watch her basically die on the vine too young yeah and it's fucking tough and i don't even know what to say about this movie like (laughs) the subject matter is really tough it's about childhood sexual abuse and i feel like it came out at a time in the mid-2000s when that was becoming unignorable in the catholic church like it was always kind of a joke that priests did that and kind of like a open secret but i feel like in the mid 2000s is like the first time that really blew up on like a public media stand where people were actually getting in trouble for it like legally Mm -hmm. so the movie's really dealing with that history and like how far back it goes and then on top of that you just have this like i don't want to call it autobiographical because i do not know what aspect of this is particular to amadovar's life but it feels like he's making some kind of comment on his upbringing in Franconian Spain and like what the Catholic church's presence in schools means to those kids and like how you could relieve that tension in media, like how you could get your revenge on those like evil figures versus how it would actually play out in someone's life. Mm -hmm. So it's like both giving you the artifice of his movies and like how satisfying that is. And then also showing like how fucked up the reality is um, once you dig past the artificial version and like actually get to the truth. Yeah. So I don't know. There's a lot going on here. (laughs) We could dig into the plot forever. Uh, I think this was your first time watching this. I'm just curious what you thought about it. Okay. So trans characters in media generally are like tragic figures or like psychopathic figures. And that has changed a lot, especially in the last like, 10 years and there's been a lot of push for more representative trans characters. And Pedro Almodovar's depictions of trans people are like pretty harrowing. Like a lot of the trans women are abused. A lot of trans women are abusing drugs, but it still feels like he is honoring those women. Like he's not using them as props. And I think he also uses a lot of trans women as actors in his movies, which is which is amazing. And one thing that I thought was interesting about this film is, um, so Gael Garcia Bernal is playing Angel, who is playing... Juan, who is pretending to be Ignacio, the <laughs> right, it's just like all over the so Gael Garcia Bernal plays Juan and he also plays Zahara, which is like the 
artificial version of Ignacio as a trans woman. And there's even a scene where Juan, the actor, goes to like a drag club and he like goes behind the scenes with a, a drag performer and he's like, I need to learn how to be a drag queen for a part that I'm going to play. Can you teach me how to be a drag queen? And he's, the drag queen is saying basically like, how much are you going to pay me? Like, this is my life. And, and Juan is saying like, ah, yes, this is perfect. Like he's, he's trying to take all of these um, mannerisms. Even better than that. She says, I already do all of those things you're trying to learn. Why don't you just cast me in the role? Yeah, exactly. Like I can play this person. And he's like, ah, this is perfect. Like this, this sass is just what I need for my, my part. So I think it's, that really stuck out to me as like, like making a movie about trans identity and trauma and also and and specifically like representation of trans characters in film because they're filming in the movie they're filming a story about a person that transitions into a trans woman and is like addicted to drugs and trying to like bribe this priest that abused her basically he's tackling this like very touchy area in like a pretty elegant way actually and I think doing as much as he can to represent these stories in a, an authentic way I, I struggle with it a little bit because it still feels like playing these identities for melodrama's sake but it, again like all of the other films it feels like he does have respect for these people for their experiences I think it's the same as cis women where like if he had more trans characters mm-hmm. and like a wider breadth of them, it would be easier to get away with the icky parts right. here. And this movie's at least directly commenting on that mm-hmm. and like showing what would normally happen with this kind of character in a film versus like how that trauma would play out in real life. I feel like he is like tackling that Mm -hmm. directly whether or not he's supposed to be the person who should be doing that is up for debate yeah and not something i can say with any kind of moral authority but i think that if he didn't have like just one trans character per film it would be a lot more forgivable when he fucks up yeah you know (laughs) yeah definitely it would be a lot it would be a lot easier for him to get away with the things he's interested in if it weren't like this is representative of all trans women. This like prostitute who gets beat up and is addicted to heroin. Yeah. And especially like a movie specifically about a trans woman and the people that are playing a trans woman. I think it's also significant that Juan is like a struggling actor and trying to play this like great juicy role as like masquerading as his trans sister but he's also responsible for the death of his sister. Like he is the one that like brought about Ignacio's death in the first place, giving some heroin that was like, it was like a hundred percent heroin, I think. Yeah. She's more used to shooting up like cut stuff, like dirty yeah. like stuff. So like her portion would have been like way off if right. she's given actually pure heroin. So yeah. she shoots up way too much. So it's like a, really indirect actually like pretty brilliant way to get away with murder right um but but yeah that puts him in a spot where he's like a straight-up villain that killed the most tread upon person in the film and like he's done all of that while also like 
having an affair with the priest that abused Ignacio in the first place. And then capitalizing off of her trauma right. to launch his career as an actor. Which, which ends up being extremely successful. Yeah, so it's this wasn't my favorite movie. And I think it is because it's hard for me to kind of get over the depiction of trans life. But I mean, at the same time, it's like it was in the 2000s. And you, I mean, you have to be honest about the like ways that trans people are struggling. But I don't know, it just did, it doesn't feel like you said, as representative and respectful as uh, characterization as like his depictions of female life and like the variety of life available to women. And that's kind of a struggle I have with talk to her and bad education mm-hmm. is just the lack of like women in general. Right. Like the fact that on hell is like the only women of any significance in those two movies. Like that is a loss yeah. for me. <laughs> like, I don't even know how to put this without sounding like an asshole, but like, I wonder how much that has to do with this being one of his most critically acclaimed, like mm. award winning periods is like this is him digging into masculinity and masculine characters Mm -hmm. it seems like it's kind of a questionable coincidence that that's the period of time where he started winning oscars and getting more attention (laughs) that's yeah that's a that's a good point i mean again the thing that i love about all about my mother is the love in that movie and he talks about how like men for him were like men were never really a part of his life in forming his personality or like helping him grow as a person. Like men were these like figures of authority to him and that's what they represented. So it's like he doesn't have as much love for men in general as he does for women. And I think that totally comes across in talk to her and in bad education. Like he he's showing how disgusting and traumatizing men have the capacity to be. And and I do kind of appreciate that, honestly, but it's like it doesn't make me feel as it doesn't make me feel as good as all about my mother does. I just like, you know, I get enough of like men being horrible in, in other facets of, of life. Which is kind of why I'm glad I pushed on to watch Volver, mm-hmm. uh, which was his next film. Yes. Even though we weren't supposed to talk <laughs> about that one. Because it felt like a full like coming around back to like the lives of women. Yeah. It stars, in a way, the main actress from Women on the Verge. Um, in this case, she's playing a ghost. Mm-hmm. And she's haunting the lives <laughs> of her daughters. I don't know how far we want to get into this because you, um, you didn't rewatch that mm-hmm. th- this episode, right? Yeah. But... It's like a matter of fact kind of ghost story, Mm -hmm. but it's basically what's like beautiful about it or what's like what makes this sort of like a full circle, like pleasant experience is that we're back to like the realm of women and this like artificial scenario. It feels almost like a sitcom again, like the earlier films did. Yeah. Uh, where you just like love the characters and they have their own little like femme realms that they run on their own. I don't know. It was just great to land there after watching talk to her in bad education which were so much like immersed in like masculine violence <laughs> yes absolutely and volver has that masculine violence but it is just like it's not 
the centerpiece of the film. The, the centerpiece is women surviving the evil shit that men do and kind of like soldiering on and creating community together. Yeah. That's one critique that people have had about Almodovar's treatment of women, that he puts women in horrible situations, like they're all survivors. But I mean, at the same time, I, I think he is pretty honest about the things that women have to survive and the ways that they survive those things together. And especially in Volver with this like ancestral knowledge and ancestral strength which is really beautiful to me. Yeah, if you look at the statistics of like how many women you know have probably been assaulted in their lifetime, it's pretty fucking grim. Yeah. So like he is directly engaging with that and just how that, even if that's not something that's happened to an individual person, the threat of it is there. Mm -hmm. That is part of his films. And that is something that I don't normally like as a topic in films. Mm -hmm. But it is not the act itself that is centered as much as the fallout right. of it. Even in bad education, I would say like it doesn't linger on the abuse itself. It's more about the like decades of trauma that like echo after mm-hmm. it and involve air watching these women after the initial abuse, which happens early in the film or even before the film even starts, mm-hmm. like watching them get on their feet and form their own community and like solidarity beyond that abuse. Like it's heartwarming, which yeah. is not something like all these movies, like you talk about suicide and like addiction and rape and murder and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And it's like, why was that so fun to watch? <laughs> why did it make me feel good? Yeah. Like he finds this like beauty and survival right. in a way that doesn't feel exploitative. It just feels true. Yeah. I, I don't feel like the women are ever defined by the things that men do to them. The women are these self-contained humans and, and things happen to them. Men do things to them. And they find ways to move on from it. So, again, like you said, it it makes a film that grapples with things that women grapple with, but it doesn't exploit abuse or violence. I and it kind of offers a direction for people to move towards, and like it offering a personal salvation from like horrible trauma. And I, I think that that's, that's beautiful. I think that he, like, again, really respects women and he sees the things that women go through and the ways that women rally around each other and survive those things. I feel like that's so, so important to make. I'm just, like, so grateful to him for caring that much about the ladies. And what's exciting is that there's, like, I don't know, dozens of movies that you haven't <laughs> even watched like it feels like we're only scratching the surface mm-hmm. here and we're just talking about his like best known films yeah what's really funny to me is i'm looking at this list and the two i'd most recommend to people are all about my mother and volver mm-hmm. and i feel like they're the two we least talked about yeah because talk to her and bad education are so like tricky and so like muddled in the morality that like it's more rewarding to like dig down mm-hmm. into like what they're doing and what they're saying. We're like Volver and all about my mother are just like kind of near perfect objects. Right. And there's really nothing to pick at. Like they're just great. Yeah. Just watch them. <laughs> <laughs> we could have done this podcast in like two minutes. Yeah, right. just watch, those two. <laughs> watch these two movies. And uh, yeah. And, th- and that's it. Yeah. And I <laughs> like, 
I didn't rewatch Volver for this podcast, but I remember like my reaction to it. And I very recently watched All About My Mother. And it was just like, there are these ridiculous melodramas that have all these horrible social problems and, and violence and tragedy and trauma. And, but it's like, so it, like both of those movies just made me cry. And it was, it was not necessarily because of tragedy. It was like, they're just like life affirming movies. And it's, I think it's really rare to have a life affirming movie that like stares so bluntly at terrible things. So d- just just please watch them. <laughs> and you know he's still making movies. Like he's right. he's making a short film with Tilda Swinton. I think it's being released this year and it's like a a film version of a play by Jacques Cocteau, is that his name? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, The Human so he's ma- he's making a film The Human Voice. So I just feel like he's not he's still not done. He's going to he's going to give us some more goods. I don't feel like we're done with him either. Like, I feel like we should go back and watch his like punk transgressive films from the eighties. I know for a fact that we're definitely going to return to pain and glory because that is a promise I am making (laughs) to you. Yay. Okay, good. (laughs) We will, we will do that. I think that'd be a fun episode with like directors who are making films about themselves, but aren't really about themselves. Right. You know what I mean? Like some kind of like, like semi, semi-autobiographical yeah. self-portraits. Yeah. We'll come back to this topic mm-hmm. for sure. But I would say even the movies that I didn't love from this episode, I still found so much to dig into and think about mm-hmm. that. I don't know. A lot of directors, when you don't like their movies, it's like, oh, that wasn't your best. Maybe come back next time. Uh-huh. We're like the two I didn't love, love here. I, thought about them even more than the ones I did love in a way. Right. Like I was like just picking apart what they were saying, and what they were aiming for. Yeah. So he's just a very interesting filmmaker. And I feel like there's so much more we could dig into in the future. Yeah. And you haven't even, have you seen the skin I live in? No, we almost watched that yeah. for this episode, but we, we shied away from it. Right. Again, that's probably my least favorite film by him, but he like, that is even more like transgressive and subversive and strange and like, all of his movies have something to say. I just always enjoy watching and thinking about his films, no matter what. Yeah, so I totally agree. Like, I don't, I don't think I would ever recommend that somebody not watch one of his movies. It's just like, he's just so worth kind of digging into. And although we didn't talk about Volver or All About My Mother in depth that much, we did dig into... Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown a lot more thoroughly in the Movie of the Month discussion, Mm -hmm. which I'll link to in the notes of this episode if you want to hear even more Almodovar speak. Mm -hmm. Next episode of the show, Boomer and I are supposed to discuss this French porno that I mailed him (laughs) from the 80s. That sounds about right. Yeah, that's the vibe I've been on lately. (laughs) I know I mentioned... uh, reality competition shows and like um, old school melodramas mm-hmm. at the top of the episode, but I've also been watching a lot of vintage porn again. Wonderful. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the postal service has been very slow for obvious reasons. Right. If you've read a newspaper. Um, so that hasn't actually arrived to Austin yet. Um, so I don't know if we will be talking about porno next week. So it might be a surprise if that's not what it Ooh. is. <laughs> and soon after that, we'll be getting into more like Halloween type territory, I think, for the next month or so. A lot of spooky movies coming your yes. way. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. Spooky, spooky. 
And I think you and I are going to do a spooky episode together. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm so happy that I, I know I haven't done the podcast in a while, but I love talking about Almodovar with you. So thank you for inviting me and letting me spill the beans on, on one of my favorite directors. Well, you are a um, official co-host of the show, so you're welcome anytime you want. Right, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, technology is limited a little bit. You and James would have to have two computers in two different rooms mm-hmm. to be on together. Yeah. But uh, we have to work it out so that you're on more often, I think. And I can't wait to talk about spooky movies, and I can't wait to talk about like Almodovar and Fuck Me, Fuck Me, Fuck Me, Tim, which I definitely have to watch because I just can't even imagine what that is about. Fantastic title. Yes. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.